Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi, hello. I'm Carl Christopher and welcome to For the Love of Hip Hop. This is the show where we invite guests to speak to us about what made them fall in love with hip hop. In the show, guests will give us their insights into the key records, places, spaces, people and objects that shaped and influenced the taste in hip-hop culture. In the first season, I'll interview the first generation of hip-hop heads, those who directly experienced the hip-hop genre storming and forming its way into the cultural landscape. Now, the most prominent music genre across the globe, hip-hop is here to stay and we, you, love it. In this episode, my guest is Fad Baron, aka Fad Boogie. Fad is a mover and shaker in the music industry, with solid connections in music management and publishing. Fad wears the hats of A&R manager, radio producer and music consultant. Fad has played a part in the careers of Kanye West, Estelle, Low Key, Mark Ronson, Wretch32, Basement Jacks, Maverick Sabre, and his good friend, the late Jay Diller, which you'll hear more about in this episode. Fad connects the old to the new in UK hip-hop and R&B. His credentials go back to producing Trevor Nelson's show on Kiss FM and selling records in Wild Pitch Records, then one of London's premier hip-hop record stores, to currently giving exposure to the next generation of US and UK rap artists on his big promo show on HFM. With that kind of CV, you know Fad is the consummate tastemaker and hipster, which is just as well, as on the street level, he's one of the freshest and dopest dressers you could hope to meet. For the love of hip hop. So, uh, welcome to the For the Love of Hip Hop. We all start uh, by asking our guests, what was your music background? What was your music taste before hip hop? Hmm. So, I am from a Caribbean family. Like, a lot of the talk that's been on the news recently with your Windrush generation and blah, blah, blah. My um, dad would have come to England in the 60s um, with his skills in kind of building, engineering, that kind of, you know, kind of world. He was very practical, as in as a boy, his first love was the guitar. So as my dad grew older in the 60s, 50s, 70s, whatever, he embraced what would have been the contemporary, predominantly black music culture at the time, from your Motown to your R&Bs to blah, blah, blah. So I grew up in a house that had a mixture of what would have been American import records, Motown, soul music, Brooke Benton, Solomon Burke, Otis Redding, um, the Vandellas, the Supremes, and what would have been also a chunk of um, Caribbean influence music, uh, early reggae, ska, um, that would have been my household from my parents. And I suppose the immediate peer group going to school would be 
what you were exposed to as a child from the age of seven in your first school what would have been popular in conversation in the playground and what people discussed as their favorite radio stations and what their parents and big siblings were playing in the house and what was that what was those records which came from the bigger boys um from those older around me i discovered someone called jim reeves um an american r&b country type person um, you didn't discover that from your parents from a caribbean home yeah 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 i discovered that. i definitely <laughs> discovered that i definitely <laughs> discovered that from my parents and older siblings and my caribbean okay. and their church going friends so from my parents church going friends definitely would have been a jim reeves it would have been a brooke benton it would have been a solomon burke Mm-hmm. It would have been a uh, um Oscar Peterson. Mm-hmm. It would have been um Otis, uh Marva and the Vandellas. A lot of what would be American R&B 60s 70s soul. Um from older older established contacts. Um my cousins in Peckham, a few years older than me. Um and the, imme- the immediacy of um my school friends it would have been what was contemporary music on the radio and what was contemporary music um on the very few music shows offered in the UK and it would top of the pops with Adam and the Ants and Blondie <laughs> something a bit more cutting edge so yeah. what would have been the, the late 70s early 80s the older sibling stroke friends peer groups would have been embraced with what would have been american released music the very foundation days of um grandmaster flash and super rapping and what would be rap culture coming from the states and what would have been for the continuing metamorphosis of caribbean culture i'm of guyanese descent i have cousins of bob bajan descent uh, i've got one or two cousins in jamaica and the usual formula for a lot of caribbean people when they leave the caribbean is to come and better their lives in england in canada or in america well that was my experience as card it might be different for you and your gang but that's what a lot of the guyanese bajan and jamaican people did so uh the older people would have been jimmerese <laughs> um some of the older soul heads because late 70s early 80s in the uk soul music jazz funk people going to um crackers hundred club the kind of dancer central london orientated clubs which i was too young to go to i was 10 i was 9 i was 11 i was literally going to school and coming home and playing in the park um but i was at that time technology gave us young people something called a tape If you have to explain to um, your audience what tapes are, Carl, I'll leave that to you. <laughs> Now we're 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 all grown on this show. Everyone knows okay. what a tape is. So in my tape days, I would have had Jamaican um, influence from your Maccabees, your Wildwoods, your Ruwood, your Ewers from the seventies. So my my uh, late nine, ten, eleven, twelve, preteen, that kind of generation, it would have been music from influence from my immediate older peers which would have been american influence coming over to the uk jazz funk soul early rap culture hip hop 
um, break dancing and body popping was rife at the time. So what has later now become under the umbrella after 47 years of culture as hip hop, back in the late 70s, early 80s, a lot of us described that as electro music, which is still embracing the umbrella of hip hop. A lot of that, uh, the culture was very, very intense, surrounded around dancing. A lot of our heroes would have been people coming out from the early movies from the States who were spinning on their head and their elbows and their shoulders. And a lot of that was uh, emulated in many, many playgrounds and many youth centres I know in the capital. Did you partake? I did body pop. I did spin in my neck. I did. I wasn't dope at breakdancing. I was sick at body popping. But I don't know. If you're in a class of 30 people, literally between 1980 and 1983, I guarantee 25 of them would have been influenced by the culture of what we now know as hip-hop music. With some kind of, and even the even the women were body popping and spinning on their necks and, you know, moonwalking and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, uh, early hip hop seemed to be. Uh, it was definitely there was an equality about it, so you could partake if you could dance. You could partake. You was involved. Yeah, yeah. drop a bomb on that. I really amplify that without a doubt because I think the audience who wanted to learn and were in awe of your skills encouraged you. They wanted you to. And it was new to a lot of us, so it was like, oh, this is new, or this person could do that move. How do you do that move? And when you, I think everyone was kind of learning, and it was like, well, there's an elder who's on a curve. I want to get to that level. Absolutely. And you have to remember, Carl, that Anna, in, well, in my household and my community in general in East London, in Forest Gate, Stratford, that part of the world, there weren't, you know, there was nothing there yet as your BETs and your Channel U's. And so from a musical outlet point of view, you probably had top of the pops once a week that basically enlightened you and educated you on what music was from a visual point of view. And in the late seventies, early eighties, Carl, if you saw any element of I don't know urban culture from the states or from the you know from the UK, like to a musical youth in the kind of early eighties to mid eighties, you were jubilant that there was someone from your immediate peer group or your culture being recognised for the musical skills and being seen on a national basis by the land. So, yeah, you kind of really got excited seeing anything remotely from the culture of body popping, hip hop, break dance, rap on the TV, the newspapers, anywhere. What was the first hip hop record that you'd say grabbed you? The one that took your attention and said, this is my defining moment. I'm into this culture. Broken glass everywhere. Um, Grandmaster Flash the message uh, where I was knowledgeable to break down the bars the rhyme the video I mean I'm obviously aware as I got older with working in a record shop working with you at Kiss FM and being a DJ running club of course I know the history of Grandmaster Flash going back to super rapping and blah 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 but when, when I had literally disposable income in my pocket of pound fifty. And when I could form, I suppose, what would be in a modern world, a Facebook group. But back in the early 80s, that would have been us guys underneath the um, bus shelter, I suppose. Uh, my first one that grabbed me from a lyrical point of view and the video, everything, would have been Grandmaster Flash, The Message. Um, around the same time, obviously, we were aware of popping records. Um the late 70s 
81, 82, 83, there would be many records now under the culture of hip hop that me and you would describe as instrumental. They were just literally beats that people popped to, did break dance into. There might be in a repetitive chorus. But when it came to the whole, the, the, the clever syllables and metaphors and punchlines, and yeah, it was definitely Grandmaster Flash the message. I would say that grabbed a whole generation. I think that must have come out 81, 82. Yeah. yeah probably 81, 82. Yeah. So from that, from your first record, Grandmaster Melly Mel. Grandmaster Flash, the message. Grandmaster, Grandmaster Flash, the, Grandmaster the message. Flash message. Five, the message. And Furious Five. Melly Mel was the chief rapper within that record. Indeed. What's your next record that grabbed you that says, this is my culture now? Okay. So I've, um, after our conversation, I broke down and I've got four of these. Yeah. So in the. So I've been fortunate to love the music, to be an. A child of an immigrant Caribbean parent who, by and large, for a quarter of a century, I've, you know, I'm a graduate. I've, I would have got what would have been academic qualifications in leaving school. I'd have got like, say, 13 of those. Then I did A levels, I did a, a degree. But by and large, I was fortunate to do my hobby. And I remember specifically one of my best friends in school, unless I'm mistaken, if I'm wrong here, Carl. I'm not embarrassed to admit it, I don't know. When I was uh, a teenager, the legal age for you to basically become a full-time, to get your clean driver license was 17. Do you know if it's still the same? Still the same. Okay, so my best friend at the time was a guy called Robert Harrier, who fortunately was really into cars, and he got what would have been a Ford Escort and a driver license passed at the age of 17. So in our immediate peer group, we were two of the young teenage guys running around the ends in what would have been a car um, in the 80s in Forest Gate, Stratford, East London. That was amazing. And uh, we didn't have an amazing car stereo, but with the car stereo we did have, I was the one responsible for getting the music because I was passionate. I would tape um, radio shows, pirate stations, legal shows on Capitol and Westwood and loads of other stuff. And... One of my favourite songs was a song by Run DMC called Peter Piper. Oh, okay. That we basically had on repeat and as loud as mm, wherever we went between our, I don't know, East London College lectures or whatever it was, we basically lived in the car and Run DMC, who influenced us as teenagers, not just musically, but as you said in this previous conversation that you realised that this hip-hop culture grabbed you, Carl, significantly differently than it would your mother and father and this would not be your mother and father's culture, I too what felt similar that this rap stuff and these, uh, these Adidas sneakers with no shoelaces and these Adidas sneakers with the chunky shoelaces and the stitching down the front of the jeans and basically the whole hip-hop culture and style, not just musically, grabbed me. Uh, through the hip-hop culture, as much as I was in a Caribbean household where my parents would have played Jim Reeves. <laughs> Love him. James Brown, your book Benton's, you know, whatever would have been the Caribbean influence 
from their Guyanese, Jamaican, Dominican, Bajan, Trinidadian friends in church and blah, blah, blah. Um, uh, I also was influenced profoundly by what would have been the hip-hop culture. And um, I'm sure you're of the generation of remembering um, Fat Gold Chains, uh, the, the, the big buckles you had on your belt, your name belt. Yes. That, okay, yeah. So that was my generation. And Run DMC, apart from being successful musically with dope music, were also very quintessential in being um, uh, style makers, style setters, as in stamping down from the culture, we are one of the cliques who, this is what you rock. Yeah, I remember because Run DMC did have, there was B-Boy and there was a looking fresh thing which was part of hip-hop culture. But Run DMC definitely had the all-black, the Adidas trainers, the the bowler hats, the gold chain. They had a thing, yeah, they had a thing which is like, that was, they had distinctive style. Are we allowed to call it that? Style. It had had a style to it, yeah. Yeah, Because I remember uh, Grandmaster Flash, uh, Grandmaster Melly Mel, um the electro stuff they kind of it was i mean they had these big fair coats and stuff and you weren't really rocking that <laughs> you weren't <laughs> you you couldn't really copy that too much that you know funny. they had the, the big fur coats and the um chieftain sticks and stuff but you couldn't really wear that to school whereas randy mc had a thing it was like i'm gonna get that look carl i realized in my research that what would have been cool sports brands like Fred Perry, mm-hmm. like uh, uh, a very respectable city type hat manufacturer mm-hmm. known as Kangol? Yeah. All of these would have been names au fait with a certain element of society who shopped in, um, in, in Soho, in um, Chantry Lane. Um, but my immediate peer group were not looking at city gents and people who played tennis in Wimbledon and wore Fred Perry's as people to emulate. But when those music artists thought, I'll borrow some fashion from those city guys, I'll borrow some hat culture from those guys who are on 100 grand a year in the city, um, and they made it their own, as you said, it was became their very unique style. I thought it was cool. So apart from me loving Run DMC, the group, and at the time, me being the one in school getting people's new music on tapes at the time, not USBs, not CDs, not um, Bluetooth in it, but tapes, Carl. So from the mighty Run DMC, your next hip-hop record that influenced you? Ooh, um, what can I say? Um, from the mighty DMC, this was me as a teenager. Uh in school and they were evidently i don't know run dmc nwa that generation the most prolific rap groups at the time and then uh as i be in my late teens um 20s i managed to start running clubs in central london not on great nights carl you know i was getting off at monday nights and tuesday nights but regardless it was a club night and as a fan of Langston Hughes and William Shakespeare and W.D. Bois and, you know, uh, great writers and literary figures, um, I've always been drawn to 
great wordsmithery and clever words and vocabulary. So by the time the notorious B.I.G. got launched in the kind of early to mid 90s, and this was a generation, Carl, when it wasn't link ups and grind dailies and the sources on a digital platform on allhiphop.com. We had to go to the store and purchase things called magazines and you flick the pages. <laughs> so, <laughs> and and, and the, your, your, the magazines you were looking at were? Uh, stuff like um, all hip-hop. Uh, from um, America, stuff like The Source. Mm-hmm. From the United Kingdom, I don't know if you remember Hip-Hop Connection. I know very well. Paul H. Who, Paul H. Yeah. Paul H., photographer. a photographer. He's, he's part of the series. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so that's... Uh, I mean... It, in regards to information retrieval, it's not that dissimilar than a contemporary point of view. It's just that the mediums and the modes of information was, you know, back in the early to mid 90s, we still had pages. There was very, well, a mobile phone was the size of, well, um, a banana. <laughs> and, and there wasn't any things like blogs and Wi-Fi's and that yet. And not um, many, and not many people had mobile phones in, in no, those not, days. To be not, not many people. I got my, I got my first big mobile phone because my dog, I was rolling with, obviously because I know you from Kiss FM. When I used to go and help out my good friend Trevor Nelson every week on his radio show, back then it was called helping out my good brethren Trevor Nelson. In a more contemporary point of view, Carl, that's called producer. Yeah. That's now called assistant broadcaster. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, at the times of Kiss FM, then I got, a, as I was running the clubs, I got a job in the record shop in central London called Wild, Wild, Pitch. Pitch, Wild Pitch Records. And ev- like obviously now I get sent emails from many PR companies with WAVs and MP3s. But that's probably how I got to interact and know so many DJs because not only was I DJing with half of them next to me in my nightclubs, but if you wanted to buy contemporary black music from a domestic point of view or from an international point of view, you had to go to Central London, to Black Market, to Wild Pitch, to release the groove, to, you know, the stores. And um, I remember in the kind of that hip-hop 90s-y, saucy generation after your big daddy canes after your hello cool jays kind of the the guy that was really kicking the guy that was really flying the guy that was really getting all the acclaim and all and all the applause of the new kid in the block was a guy from bed called notorious b i g and what's so different about biggie why why was the the heat the attention on biggie um I think what literally, I think the word smithery coming from you have to look at the economic sector and the avenues via which people of color, even back then, a hundred years ago and to now, were allowed to enter, were allowed to make. So, you know, you could be intellectually qualified, etc., but the avenues where people of color were allowed to enter were still minimal sport, music, blah, blah, blah. And I think after you know, to, after your mellow you know, cool Jays and your Big Daddy Canes, people at the notorious B.I.G. who had been the next generation after these guys. I just think the scene and the authorities of the culture, which was still very much predominantly East Coast, were glad 
and to acknowledge and to embrace that Biggie picked up the baton, if that was the case, and continued with these greats from before, like your Run DMCs and your Big Daddy Kanes and your Rakims and your LL Cool J's. He just continued the series of lyricism and so many working class people could relate to him because their experiences were not that dissimilar to his. He's just a guy from the streets hustling, doing what he's got to do. But obviously his worth smithery from a colloquial everyday street vernacular was spot on. So his storytelling using the contemporary hit street words of the time, he just took the baton and continued from the generation before. And he was he was the guy on the scene at the time. He was the cosign guy. It was him. It was his time. And yeah. um, he he being the, the next anointed one. The next anointed one. Out of and, out of the, all the, the biggie records, which is the biggie record that kind of that influenced you the most? I'm biased here. I like um Your choice. Yeah. I like Juicy and I like the remix of Juicy. I like 10 Crack Commandments. Um, it's a combination of the production from Primo and the lyricism. So so are, are we talking a body of work here? Because, yeah, yeah, because when you mention Primo, um, yeah. as Primo has been mentioned in, in this series, we have to show a body of work with Primo. It's not one track, it's a body of work. That's right. And, he, and, and some of these artists who we like that Primo has been involved with, he would have been involved in three, four songs on that artist project, not just the one. Yeah. Um, so the, the, the records we're talking are? Ten Crack Commandments, um, uh, One More Chance, uh, Juicy, uh, a couple. Yeah. Okay. Um, and more importantly, after kind of mid 90s, uh, Biggie Bean on Bad Boy, and yes, remember that I don't know run DMC E stages, kind of Rakim stages. The elements of exposure for contemporary black culture for rap. Luckily in America, you know they've had black people there for 400 years, and you've got your BET establishments, so they had video channels. But for us in the UK, with our early MTV bases and a smaller um, avenue via which the culture could be witnessed and embraced. The mid-90s was a generation of, you know, your early MTV bases, American videos, street culture being seen by the everyday youth, teenagers, people in their 20s, club runners. So as much as what was popping off with your bad boy at the time and your B.I.G., that was also integral to the UK kind of thumbs up in, let's expose some black culture to um, the mainstream. And... I was fortunate because Notorious B.I.G., Little Kim, um, the rest of the gang, they jumped on a plane, Carl, and they came to Europe. They came to a place called Amsterdam. Mm -hmm. And depending on if you're a football fan or not, there is a popular football team. To my American colleague, Saka, <laughs> there's a popular football team and a stadium called Feyenoord. No, well, and in, in Rotterdam. Rotterdam, yeah. the notorious B.I.G. and the gang jump on a plane and they came to do a big ass show in Feyenoord football stadium. Is that the whole stadium? So that's a stadium of what, 50, 40, 40, 50,000 people? I can't remember 
if it was 50,000 people, but I do know that, I don't know, was that 95 or 96, whenever I went, it was packed. And, and that just showed to me that the extent of where the culture was connecting with not just the immediacy of black people growing up, being influenced by older members of family um, with that contemporary music, but it was an eclectic mix. Uh, to me, the message of hip hop, Notorious B.I.G., and that exposure of, you know, um, digital TV and video channels in the mid 90s was it was getting a larger demographic than just the indigenous urban population. Because in the Feyenoord football stadium, Carl, there was black kids and white kids and Asian kids and uh, people in their 30s and teenagers. You could see the prominence and the integration that this once underground culture from America was taking hold on a large youth population across the world. So yeah, so after Run DMC, it had to be the dark, Notorious B.I.G. So I can picture it now of the crowd and how integrated, how big it was, and the screams of Biggie and Lil' Kim coming with her heat, the heat she had as well. Yeah. 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 You know, you talk about the, um, the integration and being able to take it uh, to a wider audience. Do you think Puffy is not recognised or given the credit that he should get for being able to have that spark, that idea of knowing this is where we take it to next and this is the ingredient that we need to be able to push the culture further? I would say, yes, perhaps from a domestic European English point of view, yeah, it, uh, he probably might not have been given enough credit um, 25 years ago as he would have done but in America where black music has been big since Duke Ellington Nat King Cold and Louis Armstrong a hundred years ago yes Sean Puffy Coombs was deaf and bad boy was definitely embraced and recognised for what he was doing for the culture he, he seemed to have the extra bit of spice to know how to make it palatable to other ears and tastes yeah, I think, um, fortunately, because I've been doing this music extravaganza stuff for the last, I don't know, 25 years, I think the carrot or the, the, the medal of understanding that he had was, and the majority of his artists on the left hand, like from Craig Mack to Biggie to whoever, on the left hand side, yeah, you get these street bangers, quotation marks for the mandem your primos and your remixes with blah, blah, blah. And on the other side, with your totals and your really um, sing-along juicy tracks, he had the element of, let me please the street and the road, the authenticity of the culture, and let me try and make it a bit more accessible, like a bit more palatable, like popular songs, for me to go to commercial quotation marks, white radio for me to go to what would be mainstream radio but you have to remember that because of the black population in the states and their 400 year history and for the last 100 years the whole black music jazz element from your louis armstrong to your nat king cole has been embraced what puffy and uh music gurus of his generation could take to the streets the audience the demographic was huge huge so it would have been way more palatable um them taking 
a street underground rapper coming through from a freestyle platform like Biggie and getting the ticks of respect, the cosigns to be put on. So the tastemakers on the scene co-signing you for, you for you then to basically get put onto a platform of, all right, you can do something a bit more accessible for the masses. But you wouldn't be relevant to the masses, as in the popular people, unless the core tastemakers of that scene had co-signed you. And, and, and it was fortunate at that decade, that generation, where there was some element of music video accessibility in the UK. Because like, me being in America 95, 96, running at the labels, coming from a record shop, going to every single record company. Like, I must have gone to Jay-Z and them guys in 96 then, you know, when Rock, Rock Nation like was just downtown in Manhattan. At that, at that stage, that exposure, that generation of time, um, I think the strategy car really was let's dangle for the authenticity of the scene, the club DJs who want two copies, the guys who want to freestyle and that instrumental, the guys who respect Primo and blah, blah, blah. And for people who, you know, liked an ele- a crossover element of music, bit of dance, bit of rap, bit of R&B, who would like, who wouldn't mind listening to a juicy record on the radio. But as I said, as you said in the clubs, it's unbelievable. Two copies cutting up. So if the juicy and the pop records crossed over, it just made the campaign easier for the other records to get playlisted, to get exposure. Because it's difficult for a radio station to, because a record might be a bit more underground, to kind of refuse it when the last artist record was probably one of the most popular records on daytime radio. So it opened the door slowly but surely. So that was the, that was the, the, the continuation from Run DMC to Notorious B.I.G. After me running clubs throughout the 90s and me working in the record shops and selling vinyls and the majority of you know club radio DJs, I got an A&R job for a small company called Universal. Um, a where, small company? Yep, a small company called Universal. <laughs> so, is, is, is your tongue in your cheek when you say small, man? Yes, it is. Uh-huh. Um, so in the mid-90s, that would have been, I'm honest, a, 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 a early experimentation, an early embracing of individuals in the black music scene who were integral to the scene from a promotion point of view, a DJ point of view, a journalistic point of view, a photographic point of view, whatever it was for you to get the thumbs up. I got a job at Universal. My dog, Trevor Nelson, got a job at EMI Cool Tempo. Mickey D got a job at Warner's. You know, I, so, so we're we're talking major record labels because Universal was probably the biggest record label in the world now. Yes, yes, and Warner Ch- Warner's was also big. EMI was also big. So I feel. So I think it was that the the people in charge, the people who were the bosses, were looking at the tastemakers. So I was running clubs. I was running a club on a Friday night in Tottenham Court Road, um, underneath of the Wise MCA car park next to the Cats play every Friday for like three years and there's a thousand people there. I was running a club every Saturday in, in um, Piccadilly, Mayfairy, uh, in German Street, a club called Ormans every Saturday for like three years and mm-hmm. there were 600 people there. Every bank holiday I was running a club uh, at the WAG on Wardour Street and on the same night running a club in Leicester Square um, called Maximus. So I was really in the mix and I was Mickey D 
uh, was also working in a record shop and he went to Warner's and got involved with Mark Morrison. Trevor Nelson, as you know, me and Trevor was doing a show at Kiss. So it was, I think the phrase is the tastemakers, Biggie, um, Craig Mack, Total, uh, Janet Jackson, whatever it was, Omar, you would come to Raw on a Friday night or you would go to Trevor Nelson's club on a Saturday night next to Holborn Tube Station. There's a few... And you have to remember that 25 years ago, 20 years ago, the element of venues available to people like myself playing still what was perceived as underground black music. Well, let's just say it was um, more minimal than it is today. <laughs> um, th- like recently in the last days, Stormzy, a South London rapper, and Chipmunk, a Tottenham rapper, put out videos uh apparently they're having beef this made the national news this made front like this made tabloid newspaper articles had this happened 15 20 years ago with other kalashnikov versus sway kalashnikov versus skinny man carl there'd have been no mainstream newspaper reporting so none of the people you mentioned are pop stars in the way that, that is, Stormzy yeah. is Stormzy is or Chipmunk or and not, yeah. not, not necessarily saying that Stormzy's a pop star but he has that mainstream no, he is because appeal it, it, yeah he's a pop star means he is popular yeah. to the mainstream masses yes. you could be it could be dance it could be rock it could be rap whatever it is you're, you're like Kanye is a, as much as a pop star as Nicki Minaj or yeah Tyler Perry or whatever. It's it's the it's not the genre of music. I think it's the name recognition. He's appealed to mass yeah. ears. Yeah, that's what it is. Um, so after Biggie, uh, I was fortunate to get an A and R job, an artist and a repertoire job at Universal Music, where I signed people like Phoebe One and Glamour Kid and Hinder Hicks and put my girl um, Blue on the Basement Jack's Red Alert record and, you know, signing producers and going back and forth to Detroit and New York and working with Jay Diller when he came to the... Like, I was, you know, doing my thing. And I signed a beatmaker producer by the name of Kojo, by the name of Calvin. In contemporary modern days, he's a music producer, the person who's in charge of the orchestra or the band who gets the drummer, the guitarist, and you'll get the band ready for contemporary artists. Um, he does this for an artist um, called Stormzy. Uh, Glastonbury, the Brits, all that. That's Kojo's getting the band. He does this for a guy called AJ Tracy. He does this for a guy called Dave. But his brother, who I know well, whose name is Taz, who ended up being uh, in a fashion label with Kanye West, his brother Taz lived in Inglewood in North America. And he had a rapper he was looking after called Hitman. That's H-I-T-T, man. And Hitman, as a songwriter, rapper, lyricist, wrote the bars, wrote the songs. And in 1999, Dr. Dre put out an album with Snoop Dogg. It was a long wait. In 1999, he released another record, which was huge, with songs like Still Dre, etc. So because I was fortunate to have signed Kojo and get to go to Los Angeles, apart from me going to the corporate Pico and, you know, um, the kind of contemporary corporate offices of Universal, I got to hang with Amanda in the hood and got to meet Taz and go to Inglewood and blah, blah, blah. And me being in Los Angeles and me seeing the madness 
the fascination, the embracing that Dr. Dre's um, 1999 album had with a song on there at the time called Still Dre featuring Snoop Dogg. Holy moly. Big tune. Yeah. And obviously, from my point of view and probably our generation getting into this from your Run DMCs, your Big Daddy Kane's, your Rakim's, you know, um, like Biggie Smalls, uh, Kim, rap music, probably for the good 15 years, was very, very much East Coast embraced, if that's the right phrase. East Coast orientated, is that the right phrase? Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it was New York. Um, so by me being in Los Angeles and seeing the exposure, the far reach that the culture had had across America, like literally me being in America in 1999, hanging out with Taz and seeing what his writer Hitman was doing and what this Dr. Dre, Snoop, Still Dre record and the whole album was doing was absolutely phenomenal. It's like, wow, this rap culture I was a fan of as a boy and body popping from Run DMC. Now, you know, two decades later, it literally is the most popular thing for the youth demographic in America. Not black demographic, black, white, Hispanic, like people. The people, it. the people of the nation. That's the one, the people of the nation. They uh, love rap music. I find with, uh, with Dre's music, sonically, it's different from the boom bap of New York hip hop. It is. He, um, he's on another plane when it comes to how how he, he produces records. And it could have been an influence. Like, if you look at the 80s and jazz funk and uh, Steve Arrington and, you know, Rick James and what the influences were from the 80s kids growing up, mm-hmm. having the knowledge of that music, your Dr. Dre's, your... Diamond D's, your Pete Rocks, um, your DJ Premiers. I'm just guessing that what you're hearing on the radio in New Jersey, Philadelphia, and New York as a kid growing up, late 70s, early 80s, mid 80s, is different to what you're hearing as a kid growing up in Inglewood and San Francisco. It's just different influences. The Sun, maybe, as a key influence? Yep. Uh, for example, you know, if you know the East Coast, literally from October until March, it really is cold with ice and timberlands and um, fur collars and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, you go to the West Coast, 11 months of the year, it's T-shirts, vests and open toes, and they're cold. Oh, it rained today. <laughs> so it truly never rains in California. Yeah, it truly never does. Yeah, so I think sonically, you're right. It was a different thing. And if you basically look at the whole, like when you delve deeper into rap music, what Pete Rock and DJ Premier influences would have been, would have been completely different to what uh, a Dr. Dre would have been in, you know, the West Coast because of different influences. Which takes me on nicely to my next record, which is from a beat maker and a producer not from the New Yorky world or not from the West Coasty world, but is it fair to say Detroit is more mid-America? Yeah, it's Midwest. It's definitely yeah. in the middle of America, yeah. So, uh, as I said, me being fortunate at the time in the 90s, doing Trevor Nelson's show for, like, you know, for two years and running clubs on a Friday and on a Saturday and every bank holiday and 
being an A&R man at um, Universal all at the same time. Um, obviously, I was coming from the record shop era. I was exposed to literally what, depending for the younger um, audience to listen to this, who are not from an internet generation, in the 90s, for you to get your music from America, they were called imports. It meant that the distribution company would get an order from the uh, delivery salesman who would purchase a quantity of whatever popular record it was. They would get delivered to the airport, Heathrow, Gatwick or whatever. Um, the distribution company would go and pick up his quantity and then accordingly go to his record shop in Holborn or Soho or wherever and deliver. All right, you get 10 Biggie records. You get 10 total records. And during that time, Tribe Called Quest in the 90s were a very popular group. Um, uh, and I was beginning to become conversant with a producer from Detroit by the name of James DeWitt Yancey. Can I say something? That you, I'd imagine you have, you have to be top of the pile, a big... A, you had to be somebody big to get one of the first of those 10 records, yeah? Uh, well, can't, I mean, from my point of view, being the humble kid that I am, I just looked at it as in the right place, right time. As in, I was really fortunate in the early to mid-90s to get offered great nights to run nightclubs, Carl, like Monday and Tuesday. Those popular nights that everyone wants to go out. But by the time you got to the uh, mid to the end late 90s i was getting friday nights and saturday nights so you were working know, hard man yeah so my status in the game is if you've got contemporary american music new if you've got contemporary british music new from a black music point of view rap rhythm and blues whatever you know and i'd spent two years working on trevor nelson show i probably would have been one of the people you wanted to get your record to because number one it can get played in one of my numerous nightclubs Number two, I can get the record de- delivered to um, numerous of my DJ contacts who I'd known for over a decade. And more importantly, I was working for a huge music entity uh, with the power of releasing a check and signing you for whatever capacity as an artist, as a songwriter, as a beat maker. So, yeah, I suppose for whatever reasons, people wanted to get me their tunage. Um, so after the Run DMC after the Biggie after me being in the West Coast with my boy Taz and seeing the love that Dre, Snoop and still Dre got I remember getting records from Run DM- from um, Tribe Court Quest and uh, Farside and looking at the back of the production which sounded different to the West Coast Dre production which sounded different to the chunkier boom bap um, Pete Rock DJ Premier production it's still chunky in hip hop but it had less still sounds and dropouts and it was just its own brand of production and I fell in love with James DeWitt Yancey aka Jay Dilla um, and I was fortunate enough when I was A&R at Universal Music we had a girl signed to the label from Los Angeles her name was T-Love and she was signed to Virgin Records and she wanted to basically make the album. And because of my relationships with my Detroit clan, I managed to get Jay Dilla to produce six songs on our album. There's an R&B artist from Detroit whose name is Dwelly. 
um, who ended up doing songs of Kanye West like Flashing Lights and blah blah blah. I was the first one to put Dwelly on a major release on T Love's album. And the friendship with me and Jay Dilla grew. Uh, my good friend in the East Coast, Wendy Goldstein, she had given him a label. At the time, she was working with people like The Roots and the Jazzy Fatties. And after, like, say, I don't know, two years, I had a really great relationship with his manager, Tim Maynard. Tim has always been um, a friend of mine and he's always embraced me because it was my introduction to my A&R friend at Virgin Records in the East Coast, Colin Stanback, that made him sign um, Dwelling, who Tim ended up managing. At the time, Colin Stanback in the East Coast, he just signed an Asian kid by the name of Chad. He just signed a little black kid by the name of Pharrell. And together, they were a group called the Neptunes. Uh, Phew, that's a connect. Yep. Um, and he just signed a young uh, young black girl by the name of Khalees. Um, and I'd known Colin from a DJ, a music capacity. I'm, a, I'm of Caribbean descent. My family's Guyanese. His family's from Trinidad. So we had a lot in connection to talk about. So, and because I was one of the few A&R guys really, really into the contemporary street rap, what's popping off, new, chunky rap, R&B, hip hop thing going on, I would be in the States literally every couple of months, running at all the major labels, all the major publishers, so I had a good relationship. And um, so me being involved with four or five projects with the incredible James DeWitt Yancey, uh, we formed a good friendship. And one of the clubs I was running on a Saturday night in uh, Piccadilly at Almond, I got my friend Pete and Ben from a clique called BBE to come and DJ down there. And Pete eventually ended up getting an independent label called BBE. One of the people he signed, he put out a Jay Dilla album. And me and Pete had a good friendship. So when Jay Dilla came to the UK, with Frank and Dank and my boy Fat Cat, Pete brought him to my house. We hung out. When Dilla would come back to the UK in some cold ass months, <laughs> like January, you know, I would hang out. He would hit me up. We would hang out, go shopping, take him to the record shop. I would ring him at home. I went to Detroit. I went to Detroit in cold ass January 2001. Carl, I cannot make you comprehend what Detroit. <laughs> what Detroit is like in January of every year. I've been in New York in um, January. That's not cold. nice, is it? No, not not nice, is it? that's proper winter. Uh, right, Detroit. So I've got family in Toronto. Um, so as Detroit was just a train journey away from Canada, I went to see Jay Diller and Tim and Dwele and Bahamadia and all the people he was working with in January and jumped on the train to see my cousins in um, Toronto. Carl, that part of the world in January is, yeah, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so it was Run DMC, Seminal Tick, Notorious B.I.G. for what he was doing uh, in regards to the crossover to mainstream radio and the mandem in the underground, as you said, unbelievable um, and all the chunky club songs and the fact I got to see him and the rest of the Bad Boy Click live in 96 I think it was in Feyenoord uh, or 97 and then obviously Dr Dre and how huge huge that was in 1999 and me being in Los Angeles 
working with a guy who had, you know, whose artist had written 10 or 11 songs, and then working with, sadly, who is now deceased um, because of lupus, the irrepressible James DeWitt Yancey. So, I th- oh, on Jay Diller, what made his beat so different to everyone else? What What is it about his sound? And- uh, because I, I recognise Jay Diller as a big influence now on the likes of Kanye. Big yeah, influence on the likes of a whole generation of how sonically music sounds now. So what was the what was so special about Jay Diller and how he produced? So I could break it down in technical words, and I will do, but I think the, um, the most concise phrase for this, Carl, if you're listening very carefully, would be, Dopeness. <laughs> <laughs> what was his dope? What's what is it? What is uh, Jay did a secret source for dopeness? How he would get the sample and interact with the sample in regards to the reversing, or regards to the echo, or regards to the sonic changes, he was basically doing on sounds musically and me like Dilla's been to my crib I've been to Dilla's house one thing we've got in common I think that whole 90s generation who had to purchase round things called records is we all got a lot of records a lot of records and Dilla is a musician so yeah they're not being a beat maker but as a youth he played instruments and you know he's learning like my like we could talk contemporary black music literally from your early 20th century uh 1910s 1920s is that your louis armstrongs does that make sense yeah um, miles davis your miles davises and then you're going to your Charlie earth wind Park, and fire charlie, charlie parker, parker yeah. and john coltrane yeah so you could I've got those vinyls. I could talk that. I could go through that. And then from that, we could talk Otis Redding. Art Blakely. Otis, yeah. yeah. Artis Redding. Marvin Gaye. Marvin, yeah. And then from that, we could talk Slave. We could talk, um, you know, Jazz Funk. We could... And then from that... You Ohio Players. Ohio Players. And then from that, you can get to the late 80s and you can get to your, you know, your swing beat generation. People with wide collars like your Bobby Browns, your Whitney's. Mm-hmm. And then from that, you could go further to, I don't know, a contemporary, your Notorious B.I.G., your Run DMC. So from a musical point of view, myself, the Boring Tastemakers, Trevor Nelson, you know, we have the vinyl. We have this, we've been schooled on the history of, and that's the affinity I had with Dilla, because in Dilla coming to my crib, he's like, Lardy, you got records like me, and me going to Dilla's crib, Lardy, you got records like me. So I think it's the knowledge he had and him being from that region, Detroit, Chicago, what was on their radio, what was in their churches, Carl, would have been a different infrastructure, demographic to Philly, New York, mm-hmm. New Jersey, which is different to San Francisco, which is different to L.A. So whatever the musical influences were, it's how he mastered and manipulated his MPC and the reverse sample and the echo and the, the offbeat, the offbeat, yeah, yeah, the quirkiness. Yeah. Yeah, that's what. It, yeah, he would have been seen, I suppose, in that generation as you're different because you're quirky. And whereas probably like 
me working eight or nine years ago with a UK female MC, her name is Little Sims. Eight years ago, Little Sims was seen as quirky. You're doing different things to what the rest of the rap scene is doing. They're way more popular and blah, blah, blah. You go forward eight years for the scene to catch up. She's the cold sign. She's the standard. She's winning Mercury Music. She's winning. But eight years ago, she'd have been left field. Culture catches up. Yeah, culture catches up to those who are ahead. Indeed it does. So, yeah, so I think Jay Diller, fortunately for rap culture, not being in New York, New Jersey, Philly, Frisco and L.A., him being where he was allowed his influences and Chicago, Detroit, that the demographic to allow him to put in something different, which, as we've seen since his departure in 2016, you know, if there's 10 hip hop lists of greatest producers of all times, you are going to see Dr. Dre, you are going to see Kanye, you are going to see DJ Premier, and you're definitely going to see Jay Dilla. And again, Dilla, are we talking? A body of work. You're talking a body of work from what he's done with uh, your far sides and what he's done with your T loves and what he's done with uh, Tribal Quest when Q-Tip embraced him and made him a part of their um, beat collective. What he's done with Slum Village to yeah, a body of work. And if it wasn't for the last 14, 15 years, when you are I don't know probably a, a generation, probably two generations of rappers music people who your influences are it had to be significant because people keep saying jay diller they keep seeing saying dr drake they keep saying kanye am i wrong you hear it too you you watch these blogs and you watch these charts and it's his name's in there right always yeah i'm very very fortunate to have worked with jay diller to have worked with kanye west and from a uk point of view i'm a beathead i managed to work with lewis parker who, you know, went to the States and worked with so many greats. I managed to work with and manage um, Baby J, who, I don't know, if you look at the UK rap records, you always end up seeing um, like a Dizzy Rascal. You always end up seeing Skinny Man, Council of State of Mind, like a few seminal records that changed the UK rap game. And I was fortunate to have worked with Baby J and Lewis Parker as well. I've been fortunate in this music thing. Some might say because I've got a decent ear. Who knows her, Carl? We'll go with that. You worked in a and So, Fad, I see the journey. You're progressing through the culture. You're influencing. You're taste-making. And you're close pals with future influencers. What's next? Well, what doesn't change is if the end former results call is pressing play regardless of the medium be it uh, vinyl be it uh, tape audio cassette tape be it um, CD be it MPC be it uh, a WAV or an MP3 whatever the medium of playback or exposure is in the last three to four decades the end result is still human beings listening with their ears yep i've been fortunate to have um been a vehicle to say that's the talented stuff you guys don't know here it is i'm giving you the masses the populace uh a chance and you know i'm exposing you guys to it so you can judge and like embrace or not as the case may be 
Um, I would sincerely like to have uh, another secure record label capacity, having done this for, I don't know, two and a half decades from all parts of the world. My portfolio and my knowledge, I'm humble, but I've done, I've met a lot of people and I've seen many different trends and cultures change. Um, slowly but surely, I'm going to say in the last decade, UK contemporary black music has got a bit more exposure because from 2000 and, you know, your 90s, 2010s, there are Gram Dailies, there are Link Up TVs, there are Mixtape Madnesses, there are SBTVs, there are blogs and music platforms which allow people who are fans of contemporary black urban music an avenue via which it could be exposed. Because you have to bear in mind that I think the demographic of people of colour in the UK is still probably only about 6 million and in the whole populace of the country could be 66 to 6 million so it's a very small domestic population way different to you know America where black people have been there since 1619 so uh, I think where we are in regards to influencing the charts and getting booked to do concerts and live shows so much so that Stormzy last year could you know headline Glastonbury Jay-Z a few years back headline Glastonbury where for obvious reasons because the majority of the populace was uh, contemporary Caucasian people who like a bit of dance a bit of rock black music exposure was specialist specialist radio stations specialist record shops specialist nightclubs um, due to technology and the internet it's becoming a bit more accessible to a lot of people and as generations happen and there's less prejudice and less racism you know uh, a 15 year old kid in 1980 is probably going to have less access to black culture and friends than a 15 year old kid in 2015 so whereas the culture is becoming embraced and becoming easier to be accessed I would sincerely, you know, like to get both feet back in a major position as, you know, in as A&R in a major label, record company, publisher. That's kind of where I would like now. And because I've had my radio show on HFM, which was uh, one of the long established pirate stations. These were the days 20 years ago when for you to get broadcast people climbed to the top of a roof car and attached a really large round circular instrument called a dish <laughs> pirate radio pirate radio and you would broadcast and hope authorities wouldn't um, get hold of you uh, they started in 2000 um, not that dissimilar to you know when a lot of other stations started they took a little hiatus came back in 2000 uh, they came back a decade ago of which I've been a part of them ever since. So I, ideally, I would be great if I'm a, a bigger station brought into HFM or, I don't know, I got headhunted to basically do my own show at 1pm on, until 4pm every day on Radio 1. <laughs> <laughs> basically, is I've been fortunate to see the passion, the hobby, the scene, what I embrace, I embody, coming from a school exposure to where we are now where the music has been allowed to be exposed and be heard by a larger demographic 
if I could continue being integral on that journey, getting the music to a larger audience, then in whatever capacity that may be, well then may the almighty throw that to me. It's been fortunate in regards to coming to radio shows, nightclubs, major record companies, but I've also realized that for me to do the most, um, not damage, damage is the wrong word, for me to gain the most attention, for me to basically gain the most access, the larger the platform and the more national and major it is, then number one, they have more economic exposure and the brand is larger. So me doing exactly what I'm doing on Universal, I'm sure I would have um, accessed and more people would know what I'm about than if I was doing on Kevin and John Records. As much as it's a similar thing, it's just the brand. Me having a radio show on HFM, a very respectable um, internet station, like Rinse FM is for the last two decades, it's not the same as you having a radio show on Radio One or One Extra or Capital. For National and global exposure. Yeah, that's all it is. Fortunately, what's helped in the last decade um, with technology is, I don't know, Carl, 10 years ago, you could you could find 10 people and they wouldn't three might have mobile phones and where the bluetooth and what and wi-fi stuff is on mobile phones it isn't as um widespread as it is now and in regards to people being exposed to music from a digital point of view where we are in the last five years has way more increased from 2015 to 2020 from people listening to it on their lappy on their tablet them basically going on google or safari on their iphone and being exposed to a digital radio station doing exactly what they would have been doing from a pirate point of view so and little things like that as you can see in conjunction with the blogs around the world your all hiphop.coms and you know your grime dailies etc it's meant that a whole new generation of people growing up with these amenities like your like your phones like your lappies like your tablet tablets a larger exposure of people have got access to the music so in 2010 the majority of people around the uk being exposed to contemporary street black music would have been way less than it is in 2020 like i say to many people who still broadcast as if they're on pirate radio Pirate doesn't exist. You have the internet. You can be smoother than that, than that now. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Because if, yeah, the majority of people I know who... And the thing is, you have to understand that for a lot of people who like our culture and fans of the music and fans of the genre, like the reason Pirate Station was relevant and all these DJs had shows after the watershed hour is if you didn't want to listen to Oasis all day and Kylie Minogue, which you'd get in Capital and Daytime Radio, you really had to stay awake to hear me and Trevor Nelson at Kiss FM late at night, or Matt White, or Mickey D, or Jigs, or DJ 279 on, you know, what would have been way smaller local stations and after the watershed hours. Back to the music. So from your journey from Run DMC to the, the notorious B.I.G. through to the godlike production of um, Dr. Dre to like <laughs> to Jay Diller, the ever influential Jay Diller. What's next? 
who's who's influenced you in your culture for your love of hip hop? Well, understandably, understandably, this culture um, is American. Um, it all depends how you break it down because you know the Caribbean influence coming to the UK, the Caribbean influence going to. Let's not deny the Caribbean influence on hip hop. No, you can't. And the samples and what they've done and like uh, half of the people who would have left the Caribbean. We get about um, and take over and influence. We we are are around, right? Oh, yeah. We we, we really, really are around. We're Um, entrenched in music, in in the art of moving butts. Um, I'm a fan of lyricism. Uh-huh. So, you know, your J Electronicas and blah, blah, blah. And, um, as much as I've been integral and working in the record shops and working in the UK um, in music for, I don't know, two decades or whatever, as much as I understand the Caribbean influence, as much as I understand it's an American culture, um, I love Jay-Z, blah, 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 but I, I don't think I can... I don't think I can do this um, and conversate and not throw the flag back to the home demographic where I'm in. Does that make sense? Oh yeah. Um, so, I loved I I love Jesus walk. I love Jesus walks. I love by Jay Z and Kanye. I like you know Lucifer. I like so many records, but um, I think. For me to basically embrace the culture that I'm actually living in, I'd have to say something from the UK and probably go for uh, a North London artist by the name of Skinny Man, um, who had a record and an album, Count Council of State of Mind, uh, a good 15, 14 years ago. And... Um, that record, that album, with I'll Be Surprised and Ain't No Big Thing, that to me would have been a seminal influence from my point of view in regards to Baby J using the samples and the wordplay from Skinny Man and not that dissimilar to a biggie, just embracing the contemporary, this is the reality of life. This isn't glamorous. I'm an account to the state. I can relate to you, John, and you, Kevin, and you, Sheila. Just everyday active activities, you know, of you living with the police and going shopping and looking after kids. So, yeah, I don't think I could do this without basically having some kind of rhetoric to the demographic and the society that I live in. So I'm going to go for a skinny man count to the state of mind, produced by Baby J, who I used to manage for six years. Talking about the science of social deprivation. From ear to wearing the cancer, the states of man are struggling. The poor lower working class. Blood. You go to sleep round here and have nightmares. Wake up and find the worst reality is right there. The difference is in my dreams, I'm always running scared. But in reality, on road, I'm coming prepared. So now who's gonna wanna run up and become a goner? Everybody's gonna wanna get us, but they're on a longers. I'm still out to get. Good choice, good choice. and uh, I appreciate that, sir. In terms of notoriety and underground 
um, popularity. Skinny Man had that. You had your American records. That were doing well. On that were doing well. You yeah, had your yeah. club records. And there's also, I, I remember whenever you went to, to, to the concerts which were happening where largely American artists were coming over. There's always, um, there was always some promotion for Skinny Man. Yes, there was. A record. Like he had actually had that real street level promotion going on. And when you heard his records, um, whether they were played on specialist radio or you got to hear them by other means, they were different and they were very local. And they, they did speak of his environment. Yeah. And, his, his journey. His, yeah. yeah. No, I agree with you. Yeah. And they were good. He had that. In one year, it was it was the American stuff, the kind of your, your uh, Craig Max, the, the notorious B.I.G. There was that level, but there's also in your left ear, there was Skinny Man happening at the same time. Yeah, I I totally agree. Um, so, so I mean, from the whole umbrella of what I call rap music, which is why I'm fortunate to be doing what I'm doing now, um, in regards to the generation of where UK rap is. See, for me, de- depending on who you are, some people are specific and break it down. Um, it's grime. It's hip hop. To me, it's rap music. So Dizzy Ra, my show is Dizzy Rascal as much as it is Skinny Man. Because I always say that if you have the umbrella of rap and if you basically got all the songs I'm playing and if you could basically take mute all the music as in the mute, say it was just, it was just an acapella and the bars does that make sense? Yeah. It's just wordsmithery to me. So Dizzy Rascal uh, in 2000s, to me, would be as relevant and important as your skinny man's and relevant as important as Jay-Z putting that records. Because when you take off all the musical style of production from drum and bass, from grime to rap to boom bap, it's bars. It's words. And the first Dizzy Rascal album has bars, has deep meaning into the culture he grew up in. Yeah, and there's no way that an East London man like Dizzy, working with the um, patrons on the scenes, your Wileys and that generation of people, whoever you are in grime or whatever, because the American black culture is older than ours, you know, by and large, they said Windrush is, what, 60 years old? Um, America's black culture is 400 years old the the whole generation in the last 3-4 decades especially of rap culture that have been growing up listening to American radio all the songs we spoke about before your Biggies and your Dr. Dre's there's no grime MC in this country of that um, age who did not listen to this music on the radio at all Mm because that's what you heard on the radio Carl you know what I mean so so here's a tune too yeah yeah literally so um I'm going to say after uh, your Jay Dilla, I'm going to go with Skinny Man. So the question I ask all I guess, so hip-hop culture is many different things, many different facets to it. It's not just the music. It has many different things which come as part of the elements of hip-hop, part of the environment of hip-hop. For me specifically? The what one, one object? The one object, object symbolises hip-hop for you. Your uh, kind of affiliation to him. Ready for this? Um, yeah, I'm ready. It's a company called Techniques, and they make what would have been uh, 
uh, a medium via which the music could be heard, and those would be turntables. Mm-hmm. And uh, for me, that would be SL twelve hundred. So turntables, the decks. Turntables, yeah. So as I said, fortunately, I've come from a generation of um, cassette tapes mm-hmm. to compact discs mm-hmm. to um, USBs to uh, basically different formats of music exposure, but the one that will significantly um, remind me and embrace me to the culture is where the skillful element of DJing got into and musically the world got to see not just the lyrical greatness of the word smithery from that element but from the musical point of view and what DJs would do with turntablism and juggling and doubling Sc- up and scratching and scratching beat yeah. matching and, yeah. Yeah. way more so than another genre of music like house music all right you might mix two songs and yeah i think yeah so the techniques 1200 for myself coming from you know that 90s generation before there was your USBs plugged into your Pioneer CDJ in the nightclub. Uh, it was, you had to be nice with the ones and twos. And turntablism becomes an instrument. And we have competitions. We have seminars. We have, yeah, it, it, yeah, definitely. So the turntable in the last 25 years has, for this culture, become an instrument. You could do shows before a wrap-up come, you know, like every single contemporary rapper for the last three decades their, their DJ has allowed to get as much access because of their skills which by and large has meant a major radio station or a pirate or whatever has now embraced and given that DJ a radio show which they would not have got had it come from the world of your DJ and your turntablism So Frank we talked about a, we covered a lot of things today um, and a lot of talk about a lot of your influences both uh, in terms of the sonically the music, um, the the objects uh, that influenced you, uh, the the key records. What's your um, if you can pick one? What's the most outstanding memory for you of experiencing hip hop in its pioneering years? Being in Covent Garden in the eighties and watching people on Lino, um, depending on. Um, what economic exposure you came through, you might not be conversant with Lino, but for us working class people, can't. <laughs> Cheap carpet. Yeah, that's the one that a lot of us had in our kitchens. So um, as much as it's probably unfathomable now, but people would jump on public transport with long pieces of cheap kind of plasticky carpet that mean you know is Lino and take it to what would be Covent Garden, which is a really, really popular tourist place. And I suppose it would have been there if Corona wasn't on. And because that culture um, was really starting to embrace the world and the United Kingdom in particular, the the demandem, the crews, would go and do halos and head spins and atomic bomb freezers and back spins and tut and moonwalk. If I confuse it, all these are relevant to the culture of breakdancing. So me watching 
the guy who lived opposite me um, from a crew called the Sidewinders. Me watching uh, the pioneers, um, the whole eight, let's just say that's the eighties. There have been people embracing the culture and purchasing white gloves, uh, purchasing hats, purchasing what would have been uniform of these Nike waterproof jackets um, with matching tracksuit bottoms. Uh, there were very few specialist shops in um, central London that we would go to. And because of Run DMC, as we spoke about before, who were very integral in establishing the culture, many of us people in the culture would go and purchase what um, we call in the UK trainers, what my American colleagues call sneakers, and we would go and try and purchase the fat laces car, which which would be color coordinated with, you know, your Nike waterproof tracksuit, whatever it was. And we would all go to Covent Garden and watch the mandem. And they would have hats and try and collect money. And yeah, that would have been one of the most outstanding memories because that's really the pioneering element in contrast to where we are right now, where Chipmunk and Stormzy can talk about having a beef now. And that gets into the national newspaper and the national news that just shows you how far the culture has gone. Because five years ago, this would not have got into anything apart from a black music blog. For the love of hip-hop, stories from the vault of the culture. That's it for now. Thank you for listening. For rights reasons, the music is restricted on the podcast. If you wish to hear an extended version of this show, please head to Mixcloud, find the moniker for the love of hip-hop, and for a small subscription fee, you'll have access to content with more music and more stories. If you're happy to listen to the podcast version for free, cool. Please do like, share and review. It all helps to gain recognition, which helps to producing more content. Thank you. Bye for now.